you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I imagine that most all of you have been thinking about Easter, thinking about resurrection. Um, I imagine even some of you have been steeped in Easter devotions this week, maybe even for weeks, plural. For those of us who preach, there's a unique, preach and teach, there's a unique responsibility. It's, we all know that Sundays are coming every week. And we even know that Easter and Christmas are coming. And so we're often ruminating on the nature of Easter and specifically the resurrection. And we're going to give our attention to that in a unique way. I don't know if any of the texts that you have thought about in discussing or thinking about or ruminating upon the resurrection have been from Acts 13. So I wanted to try and give you a new look at a a different way to think about it from a text that is preaching resurrection at the heart and specifically linked to the good news. I hope you're there now in Acts 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey, he is in Pisidian Antioch with Barnabas, and so those allusions are made in the chapter. We're going to give our attention to the reading from verse 26 all the way to 43, but we're going to focus on the heart of this text in 32 to 39 this morning, this Easter morning. God's Word from Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 43. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it's written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid down, laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. 
Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. How many still believe in the centrality of the Easter season? How many people still believe in the heart of Easter? Apart from all the bunnies and chocolate and stuff like that. How many people do you know who believe in resurrection? How many people believe specifically in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, from Nazareth, raised from the dead, according to the Scriptures? How many people, if you were to do a real inventory of your life? Now, maybe if you only spend time with Christians, it's easier for you to ask the question this way. How many people do you know who do not believe in the resurrection? Not theoretically. How many people do you know who do not believe in the resurrection? Have you told them about it? Have you seen how the Bible this morning alone linked the good news of the gospel to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The gospel itself. Jesus Christ dead, buried, and raised according to the Scriptures, is the gospel that Paul preached and you heard from 1 Corinthians 15. And I mean the actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and of those who are united to Him by faith. Welcome to the true Easter. This is the reality of Easter that we try and focus on. Jesus raised from the dead according to the scriptures, as Paul says to the Corinthians in that first letter, the 15th chapter that we just read. For believers, especially Bible believers, the reality of the resurrection is all throughout the scriptures, though. It's not just in these unique passages, as I'm about to describe, essential for us who believe the New Testament especially, but there's the uniqueness of the way that Paul is preaching to the saints and the the Jews, and the God-fearing Gentiles, and converts to Judaism in his day, as it was just said in the text. For believers, again, especially Bible believers, this reality must be at the heart of our Christian faith. Do we consider it absolutely central to our lives? And so the question, do you live by the reality of the resurrection in your life? That last question in your outline, anticipated. Do you live with the reality of resurrection in your life daily? I hope to close there that way. But sometimes we think around the time of Easter that it's only recently that the resurrection of Jesus is doubted or questioned. I mean, sometimes we think in our masks, at the supermarket, with the headlines and all the magazines, the discussion of resurrection, right? Just like at Christmas, it's the same old, same old. There's nothing new under the sun. But sometimes we think, well, 
Is it only in my generation that people have doubted this much? Very near the Corinthians, very near where Paul was in Pisidian Antioch, well, not very near there, but um, the Athenians, the famous, most wisest people of the day, right around the Greek Corinthians, were saying to Paul, listening politely to the Apostle Paul preaching. And in Acts 17, verse 32, it says, But when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. When they heard that, listening politely, no problem. Hey, Paul, go ahead, tell us anything you want about theology, as it were. We think about philosophical ideas all the time. But when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And when they heard, another said yet, We'd like to hear you again on this matter. Just as it was in Pisidian Antioch, so also it will be in Acts, 13, in Acts 17 when even the Athenians will say, some will mock and some will say, come again. The very next verse in Acts chapter six, uh, 13 where I was, I'm going to read the next verse. If you still have your Bible open to that passage, we stopped at verse 43 because that's the end of the paragraph. But look at verse 44 of Acts 13. The next Sabbath, Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That true where we are today? Powerful that after that preaching, some were willing to come and they wanted to hear again. But for we who believe the Bible, overviews like this are essential for us to remember. And I'm just going to remind you of a few things that I imagine you know well, especially in light of your devotions for the last week or two. The Gospels contained abundant testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. The last chapter of all the synoptic Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, and Luke 24, all teach of this truth. But John uniquely has both the last two chapters, John 20 and 21, talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in addition to these detailed narratives in the four Gospels, which give us sufficient proof for all historical veracity and testimony, the book of Acts, where we are now this morning, a story of the apostles' proclamation from the very first moment. They watch him ascend into heaven, and then their attention is brought down to what appears to be some angels saying, what are you doing staring into the clouds? Don't you know this one who's gone up is going to come back that way? And boom, they go out proclaiming. He appears, he does all these amazing things, but it's those who are following, who are then proclaiming a gospel linked to what just happened in Jerusalem and for decades following throughout the New Testament. The book of Acts is a story of the apostles' proclamation of the resurrection of Christ and continued prayer to and trust in and adoration of that one who was raised, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh powerful, right? I mean, this is our faith. From further, the New Testament epistles, depending entirely on the assumption that Jesus is a living, reigning Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, is now the exalted head of the church, ruling and reigning in heaven. Do we think of Him like that? One who is to be trusted, worshipped, and adored by us, just like those in the time of the book of Acts and who will one day again return in power and great glory to reign as king over the earth, as we just heard last week in 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, waiting for that blessed appearing of the coming of Jesus Christ. And finally, the last book of the New Testament repeatedly shows us, the book of Revelation repeatedly shows the risen Christ in that way I've just described, reigning in heaven 
and predicting His return to conquer His enemies and reign in glory forever, as 1 Corinthians 15 also testified. So these passages are just overlapping and they're filling our hearts and our minds and strengthening our faith. The entire New Testament bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus. But, what about the Old Testament? How many of you, in the last few days of your life, have defended certain fundamental truths of your Christian faith from the Old Testament? How many of you, in the last year of your life, have had opportunity to defend some essential truth of your Christian faith from the Old Testament? I'm really grinding you with this one. I'm going to ask it one more time, right? How many of you have ever defended any truth of the Bible from the Old Testament, right? Death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, what Bible is Paul preaching from in Pisidian Antioch? He doesn't have a New Testament. All that I just said about the New Testament is happening. We presume it. We look backward, as I often say. We look backward through the New Testament to, to interpret the Old but they were using the Old Testament. And so why is the first point in your outline OT and the NT? <laughs> the Old Testament is in the New Testament. And Paul and our gospel is as proclaimed from the Old Testament as it was in the New. Can you, Christian, maybe you've spent decades of your life in the faith, but you don't know how to do that. Well, before you this morning, Paul gives you an object lesson. It might seem a little bit, for those of us who love doing this kind of thing, you know, systematic theology or biblical theology, you might think like, this is kind of funny. This is real proof texting, right? I mean, he's going to grab a snatch from Psalm 7, and he's going to bounce over to Isaiah 55, 3, and then he's going to go over to Psalm 16, 10. It's like, what? Do you do that? <laughs> Maybe you do for some doctrines that you want to believe. I mean, I say to myself almost every morning, Galatians 4, 8, and Romans 8, 17, certain truths about my adoption in Christ. I want to know who I am in him. My union... No. On and on I could go. These are devotional things that I do for my own heart to establish my identity, to remind myself as I awaken every day. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. The price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I am not my own anymore. Are you Christian? <laughs> do you live as if you rule and reign in your own life? <laughs> So the Old Testament and the New Testament, how many can defend the faith as Paul is doing? Long before Jesus ever came, God foretold, hint, hint, for those who have ears to hear, in many times and in many ways, as the author to the Hebrews says in the opening of his sermon, that he would send the Savior into the world. You're like, yeah, 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 I know Isaiah 53. Okay, but is that the only one you know? What about proving the virgin birth? What about proving the essential nature of an atonement by sacrifice in the shedding of blood? Can you show somebody from the Old Testament why that's essential when the Messiah comes? And can you show that his resurrection and rule and reign now in heaven was foreshadowed in the Old Testament? Paul declared in our first verses a focus this morning, and we bring you the old, the, I'm sorry, we bring you the good news. Read verse 30, 32 with me. And this first point will be a, a bigger one because it's taking up all these verses and then we'll have one closing one on forgiveness and freedom. 
But look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news. That's what Paul and Parnas are proclaiming. Good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Paul becomes personal. Right away, the pronouns in this verse in the original language are real emphatic. It's, we ourselves proclaim to you, plural. Without any preamble or introduction, Paul asserts that they are witnesses of Jesus Christ and proclaim his gospel, his good news. Just like the apostles. Remember, Paul hadn't seen Jesus Christ and walked with him for three years. He saw him on the road to Damascus, but he didn't walk with him. So he's a new, fresh eyewitness of these truths. And the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles gathered there in Antioch are receiving a first-hand report from messengers. They're receiving the good news of that apostolic truth, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And they're messengers of God, just like the prophets in the Old Testament. They have a message from God and they are heralding it. That's what euangelion really means. That's the good news. The gospel proclamation is a herald. So what is the good news they bring in that first missionary journey? Maybe surprisingly, the news comes forth from the Old Testament scriptures as I've been trying to make us feel the weight of. It's a good news that God proclaimed earlier in redemptive history to the spiritual forefathers and which would be fulfilled later in the spiritual story, the unfolding mystery of God's redemption. And the prophets announced God's message of salvation. And we see this morning the Psalms announced God's message of salvation. Of the coming Messiah and His rule and His reign as King and Savior. You might say, yeah, 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 I know that from Isaiah 40 or 52 or 53. But how about in the Pentateuch? How about in all three divisions of the Jewish Bible? The promise to which Paul refers comp comprises all the messianic promises in the scripture and he specifically links them here to resurrection. And what is it, the meaning of this phrase, to us their children? This is important because in Pisidian Antioch, the scholars tell us, and this was a wonderful thing for me to learn as I was studying and preparing, it was a crowd kind of like our own. A mixed crowd different levels socioeconomically, maybe by heritage, maybe by age. This was a really mixed crowd. And more specifically, he says, not only Jews, but God-fearing Gentiles. That's unique, right? Because what were the Gentiles to the Jews? They were called dogs. They were the nations. They were the unchosen ones. And yet there in Antioch, it's Jews and God-fearing Greeks and even converts to Judaism, meaning they're meeting in the synagogue and then Paul comes in and he starts proclaiming this other Jew to them. Yeshua HaMashiach, right? Jesus, the Messiah. It's crazy. I mean, the mix is awesome. So, can't do too much cultural stuff there, but it's exciting to read in the back. Now, and those among you who fear God, there are those in this mixed audience who are finding that Paul includes all of these worshipers together as spiritual heirs of those Old Testament promises from the spiritual forefathers. All of them are being included in this. And this is good news for us too so many centuries later when you think, well, I'm just fill in the blank. The gospel's for us too. 
The good news is for us who repent and believe and receive and rest alone upon Christ. And I'll say that to be emphatic in a moment more. But Paul covers three prophecies in particular in this section. Paul turns to the second psalm for this first quotation. You are my son. Remember, think how profound this was to see as a foreshadow in Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I begotten you. Remember, the Jews didn't talk like that about God, like Father. But notice there's a relationship happening here. You are my son. By a familiar psalm, Paul is building immediate rapport with his audience, but he's also getting a certain truth in, a certain understanding about the way to interpret Psalm 2. His Hebrew hearers would know this familiar messianic psalm from which the Lord, Yahweh, was prophesying about bringing his son into the world. Remember, this is very unique language then. And so some of our translators don't say what the ESV has here. You are my son, today I have begotten you. They say, you are my son, today I have become your father. That was profound in its day. Don't miss that in Psalm 2-7. And the word choice tells the reader that the king, the king is God himself. Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant one who makes the promises. And that he was appointing a king in that Davidic line a place of royal rule and reign, essential for us because this is the king who will sit before Pilate and say, you're a king? And he'll say, you have said it. Pilate didn't know what he was saying. But in our context, but he was fearful, by the way, remember? And his wife's having dreams and all this stuff. It's like, whew. But in our context here in Acts 13, the wording informs the hearer and later readers that this royal son of David is none other than Jesus Christ. If only one place in the New Testament had to prove to us that Psalm 2 was about Jesus, it's Acts 13. With Psalm 2, Paul teaches that God raised Jesus for this messianic task to rule and reign as king. It's beautiful. So that's justification, as it were, for even the book of Revelations, picturing him the way he is. And foreseeing by faith and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, that they may need to hear additional proof of the resurrection, Paul once more then turns to the Old Testament. He's out of Psalm 2-7, and he's into Isaiah 55. And let's read verse 34 together. And as for the fact, don't miss that, this is what happens when you slow down, you read closely, and you're thinking and preparing. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. You can see why God the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to capture Psalm 2-7 now, together with Isaiah 55, proving this point about this royal descendancy the necessity of this line, this promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one will come from you who will be the redeemer of the world. Paul was plainly declaring that the resurrection of Christ also was fulfilling and sealing these covenantal promises foreshadowed in the Old Testament. The sure mercies of David, quote-unquote, refer to the promises and the everlasting covenant that was given to perhaps the greatest king of the people of God at that time. Isaiah's reference to David says that God will give his people these holy and sure blessings. That is, most of all, a holy descendant 
the same royal son and king that was prophesied in Psalm 2. Jesus Christ. It's profound the way he's linking it, and it takes time to reflect on this. I hope you'll take more time. But how does Christ then, by way of application, right? We're thinking about these Old Testament texts and we're trying to exegete them or explain them. But how does Christ make these blessings, quote unquote, available to his people? Answer that question in your own heart and mind right now. Why is it a big deal that the holy and sure blessings of David are yours? What does it mean to be holy, right? We say sanctified, set apart. That's the language. But how does one become sanctified or set apart? It's by God. We who were dead in our sins and trespasses have been made alive with Jesus Christ. And what brings us out? Yes, we know the power of God, the work of the Spirit, etc. But it's the forgiving of our sins. It's the paying of that precious price with the blood of that sacrifice. He cleanses his people from sin and makes them holy. He sanctifies them, sets them apart. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are being made holy all have the same Father, Hebrews 2.11. It's God the Father who is doing this work through the Son, Hebrews teaches us. Indeed, through Jesus, God never fails to fulfill all His promises to His people. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the faithful God who is making these proclamations. And whether it's in the Psalter, or whether it's in the Prophets, or whether it's in the Pentateuch, He will keep His promises. And that's a great promise for us as you hear these blessings declared. Paul gives his audience a preliminary introduction to a subject which he will explain in a third Old Testament citation. Now read verse 35 with me. And so he says, Therefore, we've talked about the royal son, we've talked about the royal king, therefore, he says also in another psalm, right, hear this, the royal son and the royal king are being confirmed by what? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That is, by raising Him from the dead. By resurrection. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. The messianic significance of Psalm 16 was well known among Christians. It was well known among Christians, but it was of course known by these Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Peter himself quotes this exact same psalm in his first preach, that famous one at Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 27 and 31. He refers to Psalm 16. Paul was saying here in Acts 13 that David died and was buried and stayed in the grave. In Psalm 16, by drawing upon this, he's reminding them That great royal king you love so much, David, died, was buried, and remained in the grave seeing corruption. Now, why is that so significant? Some of you might feel the weight of what I'm about to say. But there was one who died, was buried, and did not stay in the grave. He rose again, never to see corruption. 
In fact, he was glorified and he moved amongst his people and 500 saw him at one time. And he ate bread and fish on the beach with them, raised to newness of life in his glorified bodies. Christians, how many of you know that because Jesus was raised, you too will be raised? The first fruits of resurrection is what Jesus is called. He's the first fruits of the harvest of the resurrection of the rest of us. I hope in all the stillness of your bodies, your faces, and your minds right now, you're all like. But inside, you're like this. Oh, oh, like, incredible. How many of you would like to give up that body right now? The young ones who work out, too. And I'm not young, but. Because he was raised, you too will be raised. Link the glory of this Old Testament explanation and the fulfillment of all the royal son to the royal king, to resurrection, and remind yourself today, Easter, but only every other day of your life until you see Jesus face to face. Because he was raised, you too will be raised. Now there are qualifications to that. Have you repented? Have you believed? Have you received? Do you rest alone upon him for salvation? Of course, that's all critical. But saints, this is the heart of our Easter celebration. This is the heart of Easter celebration. God raised him from the dead, the royal son, the sure blessings of David, the one who died and did not see corruption, King Jesus. Glorious. This is the one we worship and adore and trust in and put all our hope and faith in. That's what's so glorious about Easter and the focus of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of the Christian faith and the fundamental truth that is proclaimed ever since the time of Pentecost, whether you're using Old Testament texts or not. Christians use the text of the Old Testament to prove that Christ was resurrected. They knew it. They'd seen the reality and the evidences. They became witnesses upon that alone. But there were times when they said, let me show you in the Bible why it's true. God raised him from the dead and did not permit corruption to take permanent hold of his royal son, the royal king, who is the Holy One of Israel, the Savior. And just in case, well, I know you believe this, but look back at verse 23. I started at verse 26. In Acts 13, if you still have Acts 13 open, look to verse 23. Before this, while Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and Pisidia, he's still preaching, and he says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Just so you know. When I'm saying these terms, it's in the text that he's called with this unique title and label. And he's the Son of God, the Holy One, the Savior, as we just read. And for the one who repents, as I mentioned, as the one who repents and believes, receives and rests alone upon Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, on his account, these promises of resurrection are yours. And I'll finish, well... I made emphasis on one particular thing, and that was the shedding of blood and the forgiveness. And here you see how Paul's coming to the end of his sermon. And look down with me at verse 36. We're going to read from 36 to 39. Um, yeah, I've proven already. I said 36 and 7. Let's just pick up at verse 38. 
And imagine that he's speaking to you. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Remember, consider the audience. Profound. Paul comes to the conclusion of his sermon and he's touching the subject that goes to the heart of possibly every single listener. There might even have been a moment when I was saying, this is true of you, and you say, oh, but you don't know my life, Jeff. You don't know what I do in private. You don't know about my thoughts. You don't know about the ideas that I have in my heart. You don't know about this conflict I wrestle with between what I confess and profess with my mouth and what I actually believe and do in my life. Forgiveness of sins is being promised here in the good news of the gospel. Forgiveness and from that freedom that we hope to walk in more fully. How do I obtain forgiveness of sin? Such a simple, central to this. Obviously, Paul knew by God the Holy Spirit, he knew that that might have been going on in some of them. And so he links it directly. All that I've said about the royal son, the royal king, the resurrection, means the promise of forgiveness of sins and freedom from the law. Paul comes to the end and teaches their attempts at fulfilling the demands of the law will never relieve them of that burden of upholding Old Testament ceremonial and moral laws to be saved. No matter what blue laws you think you keep, to make God pleased with you, they are not sufficient. No matter how much obedience you think you offer and render unto God, it's not enough. You have to be perfect every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every week of the week. And that's why we rejoice in Jesus as Christians. Because Paul presents the offer of salvation to everyone who believes in Jesus in the royal son, the royal king, the holy one of Israel, the savior. He makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He proclaims everyone who believes, everyone who hears this good news and believes and receives. Making no distinction, he says, God justifies then anyone who pleads for the remission of sin in this redeemer. It's glorious. And then he says, he declares that everyone who trusts in Christ is made right with God. In reporting the sermon, remember, here's this beautiful thing. Um, all the while I've been saying, Paul, 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 Paul. Did Paul write this? Who wrote the book of Acts? This is Luke reporting the glories of this, by the way, right? Luke knows it too, Luke the doctor, who was there and he was listening and he's reporting back and he was telling Theophilus, oh man, I've done an incredible study writing the book of Luke and then writing the book of Acts. You need to follow the story, it's insane. And in reporting the sermon of Paul delivered to Pisidian Antioch in Luke 13, he reflects the apostles' teaching on justification by faith and not by law. Paul presents this very clear thing in just a few verses. He presents the teaching in this sermon as he does in several other of his epistles. And I'm just going to give you one verse from Galatians 2. Galatians 2, 16. You all probably have heard it. You probably all know it. But just write it in your notes. Think about it later. Just hear it now. <clears throat> we know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Anything unclear about that verse for you? <laughs> Go back and reflect upon that and see it infused as it were into Acts 13. It's incredible. Paul tells his listeners that when they put their faith in Jesus, God declares them righteous. That is without guilt. We were just there and saying it a few times when we were in 2 Corinthians. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you in him might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Their sins are forgiven, not on the basis of diligent observing of the law of Moses, but through Christ's atoning work by his precious blood shed for them that I alluded to before. And so what do we say? For this reason, Paul preaches that faith in Christ grants them freedom. And there I want to go like Braveheart, right? I want to be like William Wallace. Freedom! <laughs> you all know that reference, right? I mean, it's just forgiveness and... <clears throat> Do you know that freedom? Do you live in accordance with that freedom? Is your faith strong enough? Does it need greater fortification so that you can continue to undermine your unbelief, my unbelief, in which I walk every day? And I fail time and again and I'm always coming back. It's like coming back, coming back, coming back. Forgiveness and freedom that I might walk in newness of life, he says to the Ephesians. And then, <clears throat> in just closing this section, and leading into a conclusion for us this morning. Notice he has beware, in verse 40, we're not going to pick this up, but just beware lest what the prophet said is true of you. He warned the audience then, but then those who continue, look at verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them, as I urge you this morning, continue in the grace of God. And yet I'm not done. <laughs> to overview what we've said, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what we believe is the heart of Easter. That's the essential truth of the Christian faith at this season. But it's according to even the Old Testament scriptures not just the New Testament, even according to the Old Testament scriptures, that's the truth, as demonstrated here in Acts 13. Eyewitnesses verified it, Jesus' resurrection, Paul and others proclaimed it because they believed it. Paul's hearers and later readers were reminded you can't keep the law, and so you must trust, you must come through faith and faith alone in Christ to the one who saves sinners, the royal son, the royal king. And consequently, <clears throat> as you come, you find forgiveness of sins is directly related to Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. That's our Easter glory. And tonight we come and celebrate the supper and we will reaffirm those truths as we are meant to do each time we take the supper. Christ, dead, buried, but raised again for the remission of all your sins. And so how do we live this? The continuing the grace of God, I'm just going to make some suggestions to you. In fact, if you'd like, would you turn to Colossians 3 for me? 
as you're turning to Colossians 3. Any number of passages I could have quoted at this point. And I hope, as I very as I opened in the very orientation to the reading. I wonder if you have been moved by a particular passage this Easter season. It might be the one we're studying. Praise the Lord. Great. But if you need one to meditate upon, I would offer you this one as well. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, almost tell us everything of our lives if we believe in this royal son who's the royal king who forgives sins and sets us free. Since then you have been raised, right? Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ. Are you there and you're reading? How many of you feel raised this morning how many of you rejoice in the in this run do you believe that you have been raised because he's presuming it he's telling the colossians after all these great truths in the first two chapters if then you have been raised with christ do these things Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Right? Right? Incredible. And I'm sorry I'm not finishing there. I had it originally as the last lines, but I wanted to explain the power of this for you. Resurrection guarantees your resurrection too. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees your resurrection too if you're in him. Your life is being carried out to a glorious end and there will be a moment when God will raise you out of this broken and fallen world, this sin-cursed fallen world. And he will raise you to newness of life in the Son. Jesus now reigns as Colossians 3 emphasized, as 1 Corinthians 15 emphasized, as even Acts 13 emphasized. And he will continue to reign until the final enemy is under his feet. The world is not out of control. COVID does not have the final say. For us earthbound concerned of things of the earth, The Easter season tells us this world is not out of control. Jesus is in control. And he's doing his death-defying work, right? Like a trapeze artist, oh, it's death-defying. No, Jesus defied death by being raised from the dead. And because he was raised, you too will be raised. Sin-defeating work. He's doing that sin-defeating work in the life of his people. The resurrection promises us all that the grace we need then to live now until that day when we see him face to face is for us. It promises us the blessings, the sure blessings of God in Christ. That by the power of his spirit, he is working in us this newness of life. He's working in us this resurrection power, he calls it elsewhere. 
And if your end has already been secured, Christian, if your end has already been guaranteed, Christian, then it's, a, it's all of grace that you would need along the way that has also been guaranteed. Your sanctification also is assured because glorification is its end. And it's Jesus' glory that we long for. So the resurrection of Jesus then motivates us, empowers us to live in accordance with these great truths of our good confession. The resurrection tells us that God will win. His plan will be accomplished. Sin will be defeated. Sin, the curse, the fall, and death have been and will be fully and finally defeated. And we will live with him forever and ever in heaven. Raised because he is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Lord, we try and encourage our own hearts that we have been forgiven and set free, saved and welcomed into the family of God by grace. But you have granted us a future as well, O Lord, of love and joy and peace with you forever in heaven. Help us to meditate upon that future life and to know that as Jesus spoke of himself before Martha, saying that he is the resurrection and the life, we would, as it were, by faith, look into his face and say, Jesus, you're the resurrection and the life. Because you were raised, I too will be raised. And I will get to see you face to face. May these be our meditations as we continue in this Lord's day of worship, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.